Margin Call is the podcast that gives you behind-the-scenes access to the ups and downs of working in the Forex CFD industry. We interview the people that keep the show on the road, giving you insight into what makes the industry tick. The series is guest-hosted by myself, Jordan Michaelides, and produced by the team at Neural Media. To learn more, visit gomarkets.com slash podcast. That's G-O-M-A-R-K-E-T-S dot com slash podcast. Or take a look at the Go Market suite of products at gomarkets.com. Go Markets is a derivatives broker and Jordan Michaelides is the managing director of Neural Media. All opinions expressed by Jordan and podcast guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Go Markets, an AFSL license holder. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for financial decisions nor as an indication of future performance. Clients of Go Markets may hold positions in the derivatives mentioned. A financial services guide and product disclosure statement for our products are available at gomarkets.com. Sam, how are you today? What tea are you drinking? I'm drinking lemon and ginger herbal infused tea. Nothing better for a podcast, you know. That that's that it gives you that real uh, deep thinking uh, sort of vibe, uh, <laughs> and it's good for your voice as well. Indeed, I, I, I hear it helps with the uh, the broadcasting and the quality of the conversation as well. <laughs> now you're in Sydney, um, but I know you grew up in Melbourne, and it had me thinking about your own childhood, and I was curious what sort of your earliest memory. Uh, from your childhood? Oh, gosh, there's so many. But uh, I grew up in the country, actually, rural Victoria, and uh, always living on farms. And my parents actually started a zoo up in northeast Victoria, which is still there now. So, no pretty, way. yeah, pretty interesting uh, childhood growing up where we had probably about 14 monkeys and bison, crocodiles, alligators. Whoa. What's the, zoo, of, what's the zoo called? Uh, Mansfield Zoo. Oh, yeah. I know yeah, Mansfield so Zoo. it's still there and I think it's become quite popular over the years. But, yeah, we built that from scratch. Uh, when we had the farm, there was literally just paddocks and lions. We had a few lions there as well. So it's quite an interesting wow. uh, upbringing. We, we thought it was normal. Uh, my <laughs> brothers and I thought it was normal and then everyone else was like, nah. Most people don't have lions in their backyard. What is there any? Because you always see these, you know, during the eighties and nineties. I wouldn't say hobby zoos, but uh, more localized zoos were uh, sort of a trend, particularly in America, right? And you always see these sort of documentaries of these families who grew up with like a pride of lions living in their house and stuff like that. Is there any weird and wacky stories like that you have as a kid? Oh, so many, so many. Um, I guess one that comes to mind is one Christmas we were sitting there and just kind of open presents and we are sitting there having like a Christmas breakfast and one of my brothers said, hey, there's a monkey out <laughs> and it was sitting on one of the, the deer fences. So we have these uh, seven foot high deer fences to keep the, the deer and kangaroos in. And the the, um, the monkeys had their own enclosure, which had double gates and locks. And my dad said something like, oh, don't be stupid. The monkeys can't be out. And we're all like, oh, yeah, whatever. 
And he's like, no, no, serious. There's a monkey out sitting on one of the deer posts. And so we got the binoculars and had a look. And sure enough, one of the monkeys had got out of the cage um, and was sitting on the post. What we discovered wow. when we got down closer, because we obviously had to go and catch it, if they get into the national park behind the property we had, then there'd be big, big problems. But as we got closer, we realized that uh, four or five of his mates were out as well. Oh, my God. And so they'd watched whoever had had gone in to feed them last. They'd been watching how to open the gates, and there's two gates they've got to get through with locks. And so they'd been watching us feed them and how you get through the gates, and they figured out how to unlock the gates and get out. So we wow. spent all of Christmas Day running around 120-acre paddocks uh, with nets trying to catch monkeys and uh, they're rhesus macaques. I don't know if you've ever seen rhesus macaque yeah, monkeys, yeah. but they've got these massive incisor teeth that almost look like fangs. So, yeah, it was, you know, but that's just a typical kind of day uh, growing up, I guess. <laughs> were, were there particular lessons or principles that you still hold to this day that either of your parents taught you? Like for me, it was sort of indirectly seeing the hard work of my father. So I always found that hard work was something that really stuck with me. Is there something like that for you? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, I guess our whole family, uh, you know, when you grow up on a farm, it's you, you learn to work very hard from a very young age. I remember you know, like digging post holes as a six-year-old. But, um, you know, and then you move more into the entrepreneurial space and people say oh, it's not about working hard, it's not about hustling, it's about thinking smarter. And while there's validity to that, it's like if you can sit there and you can think about the post hole and you can think about a smarter way to dig a post hole, but at the end of the day, if you don't dig a post hole, the post hole is not getting dug. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> It's very true. Yeah. <laughs> um, you've had quite an interesting career as an entrepreneur. I remember looking at uh, your LinkedIn profile. You've had a car detailing business, a pizza cafe. You eventually founded Think Big Online, which you were in for 10 years. I want you to tell the audience about this marketing campaign for the pizza cafe that had the line of people out the door you know, 20 minutes down the street for three hours uh, for two weeks. Tell me about that. That was, um, gosh, it was so long ago, but it was one of those things where I'd been, actually had a tip from someone else who owned a pizza shop and they said, you know, just be careful with your marketing, just put it out in stages and otherwise you potentially get slammed with too many customers if your offer is too good. And I bought this rundown pizza shop uh, in Burwood in uh, Melbourne and, you know, I thought, all right, well, I love the marketing side of things and that's part of the reason I got into business, uh, well, that particular business. And so I went all out and didn't take the advice of the guys that had previously said, you know, just take it easy, do it step by step. And, you know, I can't remember what the offer was exactly, but it was a very good lesson in just how powerful it can be when you get an offer to audience match. Mm. Uh, 
it was a complete catastrophe, mind you, like people <laughs> waiting in line for hours and, you know, being, uh, you know, almost irate that things were taking so long because we just didn't have the production capacity and weren't expecting it to work so well. But, uh, yeah, definitely a good lesson in marketing. But I guess the hidden lesson there is, you know, you test small and then you scale big, which uh, is something that I've taken all through my, my marketing and business life, but also with trading as well. It's, you know, if you, you have a new idea for trading, you, you're you not going to test it at full scale, maybe test with smaller lot sizes or yeah, before you roll it out in full. Yeah, I think that approach of um, testing small is incredibly important. I mean, it's it's something that we say it comes from the tech sector, but I really think it's like one of those things that's always existed in business life. And I mean, just looking at these array of businesses that you had before uh, Think Big Online, what, I was curious, where do you think that sort of entrepreneurial attitude really came from? Definitely from my parents. My parents were, have always been entrepreneurs. My dad, I don't think he's a, he might have worked for one person in his whole life. Um, but yeah, I mean, my first business was at 12 years old, saved up the, saved up some money on the, uh, my slave labor money working on the farm and built a hutch and bought 30 chickens and, uh, you know, started selling eggs to local families and uh, restaurants. And that was kind of my first entrepreneurial thing. So yeah, you're right. It's definitely, it's in, it's probably in my blood. Yeah. I think one of those things with entrepreneurship is oftentimes it's sort of innate because you've got to have personal traits or characteristics that allow you to be persistent enough, but also open enough to starting a business. And you can always see it when people fail in business. Yes, the market in some some cases can be against them, but I feel like there's definitely like a personality element to that. Um, Your businesses today, you're now running, well, there's a few. Are you still operating Surge Technologies? Are you still a partner in that business? Yes, I am. Yeah. Okay. So, so you've got Surge and Symbiosis Capital. I was intrigued, like a guy who's gone from, I guess, marketing to money markets or trading talk me through the the change there i know you originally had bought profits as sort of like your own personal trading vehicle and it sort of snowballed into something else but why why get into money markets and move away from the the marketing space it's a good question i get uh, i've been asked this a couple times now uh, i actually originally started trading when i was 18 in 98 Okay. Uh, this is before, during, and then after the tech bubble. Um, so I did trade for quite a few years there and then uh, kind of left it and went on the entrepreneurial journeys that we've spoken about and then came back to it <clears throat> a few years ago uh, as a means to uh, you know, create another, uh, another income source. Most people, I guess, at face value, they think that digital marketing and uh, trading currency markets are two completely different things, but they are actually very similar. The two fundamental things uh, for both of them are maths and psychology. Mm-hmm. So, with digital marketing, you know, we weren't we're not a, we weren't a branding agency, so we weren't just running, um, you know, feel good type ads. 
we're specialists in direct marketing, which means we create the marketing and then we're tracking everything and calculating for every dollar that we spent on the front end, what did that contribute to the bottom line of the business? Mm. Everything was tracked. So you really have to get good at your numbers and how you optimize those numbers at every step of the journey when as these clients go through. So that part, when you map it to trading, is absolutely so relevant uh, for obvious reasons. And the psychology side of it as well is with marketing, you've really got to understand the psychology of the client and uh, or, the, or the prospect and what they're going through you know, to guess, move them through your marketing funnel. Uh, you're not necessarily moving someone through a marketing funnel when you're trading, but you've got to understand what's going on with even just basic uh, sentiment in the market, but understanding where people are getting fearful and where they're getting greedy in a market can really help you as a trader. So I think those two core fundamental uh, principles, they just map across so, so easily. Yeah, I'd agree with that. And you could say that a lot of fund managers or, or money managers are brilliant marketers. Like you look at someone like, I know you're a fan of, or you seem to be a fan of Ray Dalio and so am I. Um, you would say that he's quite a good marketer of himself or he understands, I think what as per what you were saying, he understands maths and computers in particular, applying computers and, and maths to problems, but also human psychology, which is interesting. And I, I thought like for you, what have been sort of the highlights and lowlights comparatively between each industry? Because myself having been in the finance industry for years, but also owning an agency, it's really interesting seeing the difference in passion between the customers or the people that you deal with because of, you know, maybe in marketing, they're not spending their their own dollars, whereas in financial markets, often case, they're attached to those dollars. So I guess I was curious, like, what has sort of been the, like, do you miss anything from the marketing agency world or are there things that you are so glad to see in the rearview mirror, um, I guess is what I'm asking. Sure. I guess, you know, there's, there's fours and against for everything really when we look into it. And I guess with the digital marketing side of things, it's a completely unregulated industry, right? Mm. And then on the financial market side, you've got the complete opposite where it's, you know, the most highly regulated industry. So that's taken a bit of adjustment, you know, to get used to. Uh, so the freedom to be able to do whatever you want when you want within reason with marketing you know is a is a benefit but it also has its drawbacks as well i mean the the industry when i started 12 13 years ago it was completely different there was very little competition uh it was a lot easier to make campaigns work than it is now oh, yeah. uh, whereas now it's become very competitive to the point where it's almost commoditized industry where people mm. say, oh, well, I could run Facebook ads myself. And I used to say to clients, it's like, yeah, I could get my nine-year-old cousin to run, you know, to set up Facebook ads as well. But the difference is are they going to make money or not? Yeah, that return um, on ad spend is, is what is the value that you create. Exactly. And that's sometimes, I guess, with the, the marketing industry is that clients don't, don't fully understand or fully appreciate and they think it's more about 
the process of rather than the result of what's created from that. Mm. Um, they're both results-driven industries. I mean, it's Symbiosis Capital. We, you know, we have a performance fee only model so if the client's not eating then we're not eating either (laughs) and i believe that's the best way to be because it puts you in a situation where you need to raise your standards you have to be better at what you're doing if you know there's many stories that you've probably heard as well where people will take management fees or upfront fees exit fees you know fees on top of fees to manage your money and I think it's really a dying, uh, you know, it's, it's a dying way of doing things because if the client is not being successful at the service that or product that you're selling, then you don't have a sustainable business. Yeah. Well, I find that I did find that very interesting because I, I know that, um, you know, I was just looking at uh, the fees that you guys offer at, at Symbiosis, and it reminds me a lot of. Um, uh, Renaissance Capital. I don't know if you've ever heard of them, but they're primarily a maths or algorithm-driven firm that have been around for in the markets for 40, 50 years. But you guys, you know, you have a considerably higher, mar- you know, fees in comparison to the market. I think it's like 36%. But then again, if you look at a lot of fund managers, let's just say you take all your big fund managers like UBS and any sort of fund there, they've got, you know, your 20% management fee, there might be a performance fee on top of that. Uh, you you generally have some sort of 2% carry of sorts. And then there might be a bunch of other fees for transacting in and out of the fund as well. And you also publish your results on your website, which I find interesting. So what's your process and thinking around operating this fund? You guys have been open for a few months now, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, so we've been building the the business and the technology to trade for about the last two and a half years. So we're predominantly, you mentioned Renaissance Technologies, they are exactly who we model off. So, um, you know, that's our our big goal is to eventually, uh, I guess, dethrone them as the, (laughs) the, uh, the, the global leaders in that space, you know, and they're very good at what they do. I think they've closed their fund to the public about around 20 years ago, actually. Yeah, a long time ago. And yeah, they do, they do, you know, similar high returns and their, you know, their fees, what a lot of people don't realize is their fees are uh, 44, uh, sorry, 5% management and 44% of performance. Wow. Um, so some people say that our fees are high at 37%, but they're not really mm. in comparison considering that we're assuming a lot of risk as well. You know, the client would say, well, we're, we're assuming all the risk. And it's not really that case because we've spent tens of thousands of hours and millions of dollars to get to where we are to be able to trade the way we do. You know, so we've assumed a lot of risk to get to this point to now only offer a, you know, a performance fee model. However, the institutions prefer, uh, you know, they prefer lower returns and a management fee plus a, a performance fee. So we do have a different model for those guys. But for the general uh, wholesale clients, uh, it's a performance fee only model. Mm. You're obviously applying primarily like we were talking about Renaissance AI and bot-driven strategies. Just looking at the applications of, of these bots, I know that I'm pretty sure at Renaissance they're quite agnostic in terms of the markets they approach. 
would you consider yourself a CIO or an operator who's trying to help, you know, your maths whiz build uh, systems that then get applied in any market? How are you how are you viewing that side of things? Well, it's an interesting question and we build everything based on universal principles that don't change. So at the moment, we only trade uh, foreign exchange. Uh, but it's not to say that our models won't work in the stock market or uh, you know, any other markets for that matter. Mm. Uh, the reason, you know, we have reasons for FX. So one of them is that you can't have, you know, all currency pairs go to zero at one time. Whereas if you look at 2008 in the stock market, you know, you can have a significant drop of all shares instantaneously. So that's part of our risk model is uh-huh. hedging many different currencies. So we currently trade about 31 currency pairs simultaneously mm-hmm. uh, across multiple algorithms. So that helps us split out our risk. As a trader, you're never going to get it right 100% of the time. So if you have a losing streak and you're trading one pair and one lot, then you're heading in one, your account balance is heading in one direction. Mm. If you're trading multiple currency pairs, you're significantly reducing your risk. And I guess you mentioned Ray Dalio before. You know, he calls that his black box, is that if you can maintain the same returns but do it across many different, he says, asset classes, as I said, we only specialize in FX at the moment, but by spreading our risk across many currency pairs, uh, trading in different directions at the same time, we've significantly reduced our risk while maintaining the same reward. Mm. Yeah, that 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 uh, when you spoke about Ray Dalio, I was like, ah, this guy gets it. Uh, <laughs> and I was I was thinking, you know, we were speaking about Renaissance before. It seems like Renaissance is very AI driven, whereas Bridgewater has always been AI driven. Uh, or AI-assisted decision-making with humans making the final decision, if that makes sense. I remember reading Principles recently and he was he spoke about how, um, you know, I think he first started off with commodities, eventually moved to FX and they added one new asset class on top of that um, recently that they would test and test for years before they even added it um, for their customers. And, and I was just thinking like, do you see yourself going after further asset classes or do you think that you just want to specialize and be known as the people in Forex initially first and then consider those other assets? Good question. So the, you're absolutely right, the, the latter. So I believe in being exceptionally good at one thing mm. uh, first and then moving on to other things You know, because if you if you try to do a bit of everything, you just become average at everything and then you know it, it doesn't lead to being, being world-class. Whereas, like I mentioned, we want to be world-class at what we do uh, with everything that we do for that matter. And so, yeah, it's sticking to foreign exchange to start with and then we'll, you know, once we saturate that, once there's no more boundaries to push there, then we'll definitely look at diversifying. Mm. I get a sense that you're probably the guy, one of the guys that doesn't really care about fundamental versus technical analysis and you just 
use whatever is most useful to your end case, and that is getting good risk-reward-based returns. I know you don't want to give away things like what's in the black box, but I am curious as to principally what are the key elements, first of all, that go into your decision-making for a lot of these bots? And then secondly, what sort of technology do you guys use? Like for myself, I've experimented in the past with using, uh, say, a Python-based system, and it would basically crunch numbers to look for value investing opportunities in a certain group on the stock exchange, as an example, as opposed to me having to manually uh, price those opportunities. And that that would be like uh, updated two, three times a day. So I'm curious, I know a lot of quant-based funds or quant-based money managers do this in live action. How, How do you guys sort of approach this? What does your system actually look like? It, it really is horses for courses depending on what you're looking to create. I mean, if you're looking at, let's say, a machine learning model where you're, you know, we've built a machine learning model that takes uh, 10,000 inputs mm. and looks for correlations against price and then tunes itself over time to, uh, you know, essentially predict where the price is going. So, if you're using something like a .NET for that, something that's or something that's a bit faster in terms of a code, then it doesn't really serve the purpose if you're making decisions over a longer time period. Like it's not like a high frequency trading where you need something that's super fast. So sometimes using something like Python that might be a bit slower is easier to code, which means that if it's easier to code, we can develop it much faster uh, and implement the model faster. But if you're building something that's time-based, let's say, for example, you're looking at order books and you need to make decisions really quickly, then, you know, using another language might be more beneficial for that situation. Yeah, I think think you're definitely right about that. I'm (laughs) thinking horses for courses sort of the right way to approach it. Um, and, you know, when we were looking at that project, I think Python made a lot of sense because we're not trying to trade an order book per se, whereas maybe for you guys that that order book would be priority at the at that point in time. Absolutely. You know, I guess it comes down to with the decision process, we have a number of universal principles that I mentioned before that that we look at. That's really where it starts for anything. A lot of people will look at the tactics first. You know, uh, well, is the RSI, you know, crossing this line? And, you know, what if we have a triple EMA and then that's the cross and that's the strategy? You know, there's, there's plenty of those tactics and that's the fun stuff. And that's why people naturally gravitate to it because it's the thing that gives you the high and it's like, okay, well, when this crosses this or if we've got, you know, MACD is doing blah, then we've got a strategy, but it's always going to be changing. Mm-hmm. And that's fine. And this is where machine learning and AI has a huge advantage over humans is because you might have a strategy and you backtest a strategy and it works over time. But then Trump sends a tweet, uh, you know, and causes some chaos in the world over a few weeks or, or a couple of months and, the way the markets behave is 
is different. They might go back to the way that they worked before, but you know, for a period they won't work. So it means if it's not working, you're you're either not getting trades, so you're losing for opportunity cost, or you're losing, uh, you know, physically. Uh, that's where that's the um, distinct adv- advantage that machine learning and AI have over us as humans. We can't ever crunch. I mean, even with our basic machine learning model with 10,000 inputs, there's no way that any human could assess on a second-by-second basis 10,000 inputs and decide the direction the market's going to go accurately. Mm-hmm. The other reason why we built uh, our business around completely algorithmic so you mentioned before that some funds will they'll have algorithms to give them indications and then the human will place the trade yeah i believe from from my understanding that many funds operate this way the fundamental flaw in it though in in my world is that you've still got a human deciding to execute or not to execute on the trade Mm. and you know, that human could be hung over. They could have just had a fight with their wife and be upset. You know, we try to manage our emotions is, is one part of it, but also our internal biases that we've gathered over time, whether we like to think that we have them or not, we all have biases. And so that bias is going to make the ultimate decision. It's not the, the person that's making the decision. It's the bias that's making the decision for the human okay, the AI has told me that we're going to go long Euro USD now. And then the human goes, well, yeah, based on my bias, I don't think so. So they don't do the trade or they agree with the machine and then they double their position size and they increase their risk outside their parameters because their bias agrees with the the bot's bias. Uh So the way that we trade is, and this is, going back to one of our, our principles is, you know, if we've mathematically calculated things and we've built algorithms to do specific jobs, we let them do their jobs and we don't touch them. We have alerts that go off and, uh, you know, all of the risk management parameters are already built into the software that we create. Mm. And there's very, very, very rare there's ever human intervention because if something goes wrong, let's say there's a black swan event, we already have... Uh, many layers of preset parameters and things that will trigger to execute to get us out of a trade or to get us into a trade. And so we try to remove that human element of the emotions and the biases so that we become more consistent in what we're doing. Because the machine doesn't wake up one day and go, oh, you know, I'm a bit hungover, a bit dusty today. Um, You know, let's see how we go at work today. <laughs> you know, they do exactly what we've programmed them to do. Yeah. I mean, I, I've never gotten access, obviously, not, I don't think many people in the world have to how Bridgewater operates, but it sounds like they use human-driven uh, action to when it comes to the final trade, which, you know, like the way that you're phrasing it now, to me, it doesn't make a lot of sense if you're applying all this effort into, it's like sort of, if you've got fiber to the node versus fiber to the building, you know, you got this fiber all the way to the node and then for the last five meters you got this bit of of copper which delays response times action um and applies all sorts of uh human intervention which is where that psychology part comes into it so that's uh, that's quite interesting 
Absolutely. And I think talking to, to other traders, where this comes from, it's the need to have control, to feel like if I let the machine make the decisions and do the trading, then I'm not in control. So, you know, I'm now redundant as a human, but it's also the fear of, well, what if it gets it wrong? Like we often get people ask us, well, you know, what happens if the, the bots get it wrong? It's like, well, if, if they get it wrong, then it makes a trade. It, it makes a loss on the trade. And that's fine because it's already pre-built into the models. But I think it comes from this, you know, this deep down fear of not having control over the outcome. Yeah, I think so. I think that makes a lot of sense. But, you know, and then when you explain it to people and say, well, yes, if it makes this loss, it's sort of built into the entire system. What we need to look at is the bird's eye view. I think people start to get it then. You know, one, one interesting thing about the way that you guys operate as well is, um, I, I'm not sure how I understand it, but I know that Symbios is starting to focus on, you know, empowering social enterprises, charities, and impact funds. Do you do that by investing then donating or holding accounts on behalf of those type of you know non-for-profits in particular when we were building our algorithms over the last few years one of the uh i guess most difficult questions i had to answer for myself was all right do we now just go and snowboard and surf around the world and have fun for the rest of our lives uh, myself and my wife or do we use what we've created to actually have an, a positive impact on the planet? Mm-hmm. After about a month of kind of going around in circles, we came to the conclusion, well, why can't we do both? But I feel like there's a moral obligation when you build something that can produce exceptional results. There's so many charities, social enterprises, and impact funds out there that are doing really good work that need more funding. Mm. So originally when we started, uh, not when we built the algorithms, when we were like, okay, well, what's our business model going to look like and who are we going to serve in the community? It was going to be all of these impact type businesses. But we've actually calculated that on average, we could help an average in- impact enterprise, let's call them, have 7.59 times more impact on the planet over a 10-year period Mm. if they were to invest with us based on historical returns. So they were our ideal clients to go to these guys and to to be able to essentially trade for them, make funds for them so that they could go and, you know, if it was feeding homeless people, if they could feed a a 1,000 people before, they can now feed 7,590 people now over a 10-year period. Um, so that's where I think there's a really big opportunity to have an impact on the world. I mean, trading and making money is fun to a point, but then it's like, why am I actually doing this? Like, what's what's the point? Just making yeah. money for money's sake. Yeah, you might buy a nice car, you might go on a holiday, but what's the legacy that you want to leave? And that's the legacy that I want to be leaving is essentially empowering these impact organizations to have a bigger impact on the planet. So one, we want to be working with those those type uh, organizations where uh, we're helping them to make more money to be able to have a greater impact. And on the other side of it, what we also do is we 
dedicate 10% of all revenue, not profit, but revenue that we take to either investing in or donating to causes like this. Mm. Yeah, I can I can totally agree with where you're coming from. You get a lot of personal, um, I don't I don't know, like it, there's something personal about that. You feel a bit better. Like I I know that when you reach a certain amount of income, I think the uh, what's the word the or the amount it's it's like seventy thousand. I know is the studied amount, and that's in US dollars. So you're probably looking at like a hundred thousand Aussie. Anything above that and like it doesn't make that much of an impact and speaking from experience, I would agree with that. It doesn't make much of an impact on your life and finding things like that when you can help the community gives you a sense of personal enjoyment, I find. And I find like myself just running my own podcast is that little thing. You know, we make zero dollars out of it but you you're sort of helping people in a way or at least like you feel like you're doing that and I can sort of see how for you personally, it definitely would give you a sense of like I'm, I'm, uh, I'm an effective altruist if that makes sense. I'm, I'm doing it the right way as opposed to just, you know, donating money. Yeah, and the donating thing people have said to us over time, well, if you want to do this and you want to have an impact while, you know, you know, because it's difficult to work with some of these uh, impact organisations because their mandates don't allow uh, investing in effects, for example. Yeah. So it's difficult to get through to them. Some people say, well, why don't you just donate, you know, money that you make to them? And what they don't understand is the leverage by helping them is infinitely more bigger than just donating money. Mm. We were speaking a lot about Ray Dalio earlier. I guess I'm curious who are who are the leaders that you've picked information from and that you like reading about regularly. From a business perspective, and a um, I guess a pioneer, I'm a fan of Elon Musk. Um, it's, it's actually something that it's a phrase that Donald Trump coined quite a few years ago, which is if you're going to be thinking you may as well be thinking big. So I love Elon Musk's level of just just how he thinks about the planet and uh, humanity in a whole and how he takes that to business. It's like, well, I'm just going to start a rocket company. Why not? You know? <laughs> so it's getting out there and being bold and, you know, just, just living a big, full life and not sticking to the norm, not doing what's expected by society, I guess. So I love that about him. I also kind of learnt quite a bit from Bill Gates as well over his journeys. You know, some people love him, some people hate him. But the journeys that they've gone on, uh, you know, these guys that are kind of 60, 70, 80 years old, like you look at the Buffets or the Bransons and you listen to their stories and there's just so much wealth of information that you can gain from them uh, about not just business, but about life as well. Uh, so I, I enjoy that. And then from a more tactical side of things, you know, I spend a lot of time on YouTube. That's uh, just the medium that I prefer. I mean, with podcasts as well, uh, it's finding people that are really exceptional at what they do and just consuming as much of, of whatever it is that I strategically want to learn, not just listening for the sake of listening, but figuring out what do I want to learn this year? 
probably want to become masterful at and then just finding the best people in that and, and just you know obsessively i guess if you want to call it uh you know downloading from their brain to to mine have you got you don't have a tesla yet at all do you I was actually pricing one up the other day just out of pure interest and a new Model 3. Uh, I don't. I would like to get their Roadster when it comes out though. Ah, yeah. I've got my eye on a Porsche Taycan uh, when they come, the electric model comes to Australia. Uh Uh-huh, yeah. Kind of like a, a cool daily driver and then the Tesla Roadster just looks off the charts, the new one. Yeah, that, that car is ridiculous. I was looking at the the Model 3. They are really well-priced. Like, they've obviously got to get the price down more. But, you know, 40000 for a, a car that can do more than enough kilometers, you know, you don't have, you'd be charging it every night at your house, right? The thing that gets me is that I was told most Teslas have, like, only 13 moving parts, which is just mind-blowing to me. So the fr- the lack of friction in the actual drivetrain and the engine is quite amazing. So I, that's that's my uh, my dream vehicle at the moment is a, getting a Model Three. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> um, I want to jump into some rapid fire questions, noting the time. So let's finish this thing off. Uh, morning routine. What does that look like for you? Uh, wake up and instantly put on something that is positive, motivational, YouTube video, get my mind in the game. Okay. Uh, then it's bathroom, breakfast, meditation, and then straight into it. And what about the evening? How do you sort of decompress at night? Uh, that I'm really not very good at, to be <laughs> honest. Um you know, I love my work and I can be obsessive about work. So sometimes it's not like sometimes it's turning off the computer at 11 o'clock and going to bed at 11.01, which is really not good for sleep. But, uh, you know, I have, I actually have an alarm to tell me to, to, to get off the computer and, you know, go and chill out before bedtime, but I'm not very good at uh, adhering to that. Uh, if you had to gift a book to the audience let's say, for Christmas this year, uh, what would it be and why? Oh, good question. Depends who they are. Uh, If they're building a business, particular tech business, um, exponential organizations by Salim Ismail, it's um, really, really good from a, you know, I guess the time that we're in, 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 if you're in any sort of business, you're going to be run over if you're not iterating at a very rapid pace. Uh, and it's just, it's just the way it is these days. And that book is amazing for that. Mm. Uh, I mean, there's Bold by Peter Diamandis. Um, good book. Yeah, so many good books. I mean, there's lots of quant books and things that, that I read. Uh, but also the personal development side of things. It's, I spend a lot of time reading and uh, you know, doing various courses or mentors with that because at the end of the day, you can learn all the tactical stuff uh, and how to do something. But uh, if those, I guess, biases or blockages that we have as humans that we pick up over the years are still there, then it really inhibits the the growth to take it, whether it's a you know, personal relationships or whether it's, uh, you know, creating a business or trading 
it's uh, you know, it really inhibits your ability to take it to the next level if you're not focusing on yourself as well. Mm. Look, Sam, thanks for doing this. This has been awesome. We don't get many people who sort of operate in this area, so it's been interesting for me and I, I enjoyed doing uh, the background research on this sort of topic. Where can people find you and Symbiosis Capital on the interwebs? So if they go to symbiosiscapital.com, they can connect with us there or people can connect with me on LinkedIn, not so much on Facebook or Twitter anymore. And that's that's about it. Awesome. So LinkedIn's your go-to platform of choice. Yep, that's it. There's less cat memes on there than Facebook. <laughs> well, we'll make sure we link all of that. But um, again, thanks so much for coming on the show. Pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Margin Call. Before you run off, make sure you subscribe on your podcast app to get first access to new episodes and consider sharing this with a friend who loves the Forex CFD game. Don't forget to like us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube by searching Go Markets. That's G-O-M-A-R-K-E-T-S. Until next time, thanks for listening.